Welcome to the Fat Fuel Family Podcast, where every week, Danny and Mauda Vega discuss topics that help families live a healthy and active lifestyle with their little ones, including nutrition and training, peaceful parenting, education, and mindset. To stay up to date, make sure to hit subscribe on this podcast and check out the blog at www.fatfuel.family. You can also find them on Facebook and Instagram at dannyvega.ms, at fatfueledmom, and at fatfueledkids, and fatfueledfamily on YouTube. Enjoy the show. What's that? Oh, this? Yeah. It's just my uh, keto brick. Keto brick? What, what's, what's a keto brick? Well, keto brick, well, it's an actual brick, which is awesome <laughs> because it lasts me a really long time. Can't say the same for you. Nope. <laughs> but keto brick is um, an awesome keto-friendly snack that um, it could be used so many ways, you guys, seriously. But it is keto-friendly, high-fat, low-carb, has really, really good macros. It's shelf-stable, which I love because I like to take it with me when I leave the house with the kids. Um, and it's got no sweeteners, none of the crap that we're usually staying away from. So no allulose, erythritol, corn fiber, um, soy, any of that stuff that we're usually avoiding. But it makes such a great snack. I also love it just as a treat. I like to put it in my coffee and the kids love it. So that's a plus. I totally agree. And I have one of these every single day. <laughs> An entire brick. Uh, yeah, I like to, everybody knows I like to crush mine up into cereal um, and have it like a cereal. My current favorite flavors are peanut butter and chocolate peanut butter cup, which we have right here next to us. What about you? I really love the peanut butter because it's nice and smooth, but my my other favorite flavor would probably be toasted coconut. Yeah, toasted that almond coconut really is amazing. Um, and yeah, of course, as you all know, we are great friends with the owners of this company, Robert Sykes and Crystal Sykes. And both of them, when this started, they were just wrapping these things up in aluminum foil and shipping them out themselves, pulling all-nighters. And here we are several years later. It's an amazing company, guys. They have vegan options, vegan-friendly options, as well as whey options. So the two flavors that I mentioned are uh, chocolate peanut butter cup and peanut butter. And the chocolate peanut butter cup is whey and the peanut butter is with the pea protein. So if you don't tolerate whey, no worries. Or if you're on a vegan diet, no worries. You can have the peanut butter. So guys, click on the link in the description of this podcast episode and check out the Keto Bricks ASAP it gets the fat fuel family seal of approval. Anything else? Um, no, that's it. It makes a really great snack. Um, a little trick. I will just give one last tip is if you want to melt it down, I like to melt it down and put it in little molds to yes. make it just bite sizes for the kids because it is a it's a brick. It is a brick. <laughs> Get your keto bricks. Do it. Welcome to the fat fuel family podcast. I'm your host, Danny, and I'm joined by my hardworking wife, Mara. You're working hard right now. I am working hard. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> She's uh, launching her apparel brand tomorrow, so we're really working hard. Um, but we want to get right to it because we've been wanting to talk to our guests for months. So our guest today is Dr. Andy Kaufman, a natural healing consultant, inventor, public speaker, forensic psychiatrist, and expert witness. He completed his psychiatric training at Duke University Medical Center after graduating from the Medical University of South Carolina. And he had a BS from MIT in molecular biology. Dr. Kaufman has conducted and published original research and lectured, supervised, and mentored medical students, residents, and fellows in all psychiatric specialties. He's been qualified as an expert witness in local, state, and federal courts and has held leadership positions in academic medicine and professional organizations. Dr. Kaufman also ran a startup company to develop a medical device he invented and patented. 
Um, and just to give you guys the, the word key for today, uh, that thing that, that's supposedly going around, we're calling that cooties. You guys have heard us say that, use that word before. And um, the thing that they're offering us, the product that they're offering us, uh, we're calling that genetic modification. So this is how we stay on the air and uh, hopefully for now yeah. and try to outsmart these algorithms. But um, <laughs> welcome to the show, Dr. Kaufman. Welcome. Thanks for being yeah, here. Thank you so much. Yeah, we, we had some, uh, uh, you know, some technical difficulties, but we're starting this over. So we always start with the question, you know, what, what is the most critical problem you're currently trying to solve? Well, that would be, um, you know, quite a big problem that we're all facing right now. And uh, I have my own small part to play, but it is doing everything within my power to um, stop and delay uh, and overcome this march towards uh, totalitarianism that we are facing right now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of people look at it as an exercise in futility, but honestly, you know, whatever part we have to play, I mean, we can, we can, at least I can die knowing that I put, put my part and, you know, played my part. So, um, and you're doing so much work. You've helped us understand so much. Um, and even, you know, the, the conversations you've had with all of your, your colleagues. So uh, let's get right into this. Yeah. So for our first actual question, um, and this is, you know, a topic that I'm super excited to learn more about, but can you give a brief description of germ theory versus terrain theory? Yes, sure. Um, I'll try to be as brief as possible. But, yeah, um, is it I right? Think we actually, we're all already familiar with these concepts. We just haven't really looked at the scientific basis for them. But, you know, germ theory is the theory, not proven, uh, you know, scientific law, but the theory that there are microscopic organisms, which they call germs, which require changing the meaning of the word germ. Um, but these microscopic organisms that, that are in the environment and they invade our bodies and cause disease. That's the germ theory. And the terrain theory, which is really the kind of opposite of that, says that uh, microorganisms, or we could still use the word germs to describe them if we like, um, actually are nature's recyclers and that they play that same role in the body uh, along with other roles, which essentially support our health and vitality and survival. And uh, we are familiar with this already um, under the guise of the gut microbiome, right? People actually are taking supplements of germs in a capsule, right? All the time and eating uh, fermented uh, foods, for example, also, right? Which really is just giving you a dose of germs and they know that this improves their health. So that, that is terrain theory. Okay. And, and doctor, you know, one of the things that, I mean, I, my limited mind tries to speculate on these things. And, you know, I, I try to think of um, the possibilities when it comes to, you know, for example, this is this is my crude analogy. So, you know, we always see that when women are around other women, they their cycles tend to um, tend to match up, like and sync, sync mm -hmm. up. And I wonder if you know during that yearly or or seasonal detox that people are having, um, and there could also, I'm sure, be a psychosomatic aspect to it. But you know. It, it, uh, is has there any bit, any work been done looking at you know why possibly so many people could be 
going through the same situation at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. And let me, you know, just point out sort of a principle of uh, science and logic and reasoning that applies to this, because a lot of people really get confused about these issues. But there's one aspect of, uh, you know, scientific approach, or maybe pseudoscientific, according to some people called epidemiology. Right. And what, what that is, is observing the patterns of illness and death in a population of people, right? So we might look at a group of people, for example, and say, oh, so many people got sick around the same time or one after the other, or, you know, what, whatever the pattern is. And we observe the pattern. We say, you know, so many people got sick. They got sick at this time. These people were in the same place right before they got sick or whatever, right? And we gather all that information. Now, that information only is descriptive. So it tells us how many people died, right? Yeah. The, where and when they died in relation to each other. But it doesn't tell us anything about the mechanism that they got sick or what caused their illness. We have to do further research to make those determinations. Okay. So we may observe a pattern, but then we have to say, okay, what can result in that pattern? And then we have to do research to find what it is. And that example you brought up with women synchronizing their menstrual cycles, we actually don't know what is responsible for that. Like we don't know how the women's bodies exchange information about when their cycles are so that they can realign them, right? And of course, no one has proposed that that is caused by them passing a virus between each other, right? <laughs> But so yet we observe this phenomenon of people synchronizing biological functions in one context, and we, we don't associate it with any germs or microorganisms, but we also, we don't know what the, what the actual mechanism is. So it's the same thing when we observe people uh, becoming ill, like with a, let's say a respiratory infect, you know, infection, uh, like a cold or flu at the same time we don't know what the mechanism is that makes them sick from just observing that they become sick. Now we are told since we're, you know, babies that it's germs causing it and there are germs passing between us. Right. But if we really wanted to know if that was the case, we would have to be able to take the germ out of the sick person and then put it in a healthy person and show that they get sick from it. Right. Right. Because that that would be the additional investigation you'd have to do to say, hey, this is caused by a germ. Right. Otherwise, you just have, oh, these people get sick at the same time. There must be some reason. <laughs> and you right. don't know what the don't have any idea what the reason is. And interestingly, when it comes to colds and flus, the epidemiologists have found now we don't know if this is the cause, but we have found they found one environmental factor that highly correlates with when people start getting colds and flu. And it's the drop in humidity that occurs at the onset of winter. Um, and that's very tightly correlated to uh, cold and flu season. But once again, there's no we don't know, like, does dry air cause this? Right. Is it a, a, a trigger of some natural biological cycle or is it just a coincidence? Maybe it's a cofactor for some other trigger that we just don't know what it is. So there's a lot of misleading things that that can occur when you just look at epidemiological data, which are the patterns 
of illness themselves. So then you do an additional investigation. And so interestingly, with infections like the flu, they've actually done these contagion studies trying to show that the person's body fluids of the sick person get, when they get into a healthy person, they get the same illness. So there have been, I think about five or six, maybe a few more studies like this, uh, several of them in humans, but also in animals like horses. And, and these were done in 1918, 1919, and, and then subsequent years beyond that, but they haven't been done in quite a long time. But in every case of these experiments, and you know what they did, for example, in the first one in Boston, and this was done by the U.S. Public Health Service, which is the predecessor of the CDC, and it was in Boston. Austin, they took a, a group of, I think it was uh, 70 or 100 um, prisoners, like prison inmates, and said, if you do this experiment and survive, you can go free. <laughs> wow. So, so it, was a, it was a good deal, uh, you know, uh, for them. I mean, it was a risk. It was a gamble. But if they, if they understood germ theory like I do, they'd say it was a, it was a no-brainer to take that deal. <laughs> so yeah. what happened was, is they then went to like the i you know the ICU essentially of the hospital where they had people dying of the Spanish flu, and they took bodily secretions from them. They had them cough up sputum. They took snot. They even took uh, tears, and then they put it in these healthy prisoner volunteers. Um, and first they just put it in their nose, mouth, and eyes, and no one got sick. Then they tried injecting it. And still no one got sick, not one person. And then finally, they had them get in each other's personal space, like breathing in, yeah. you know, into each other's mouths and having close conversation, like too close to be comfortable. And still no one got sick. And when they did this with horses, they actually put these bags over the nose and mouth of the horse that collected all, everything that was coughed and sneezed up. It was all this gross, nasty phlegm and secretions in there. And then they took that off and put it on a healthy horse to breathe in. And again, <laughs> you know, I mean, imagine wow. taking someone's, someone's tissues and uh, putting them all, wiping them on your face, you know, I mean, that's what they did. And, and none of the horses got sick. So they did this experiment many times. They didn't isolate the germ and put that only in, they put these mixture of the secretions, which, which had the germ in it, right. According to them. And never were they able to transfer the illness. Wow. Now, of course, you have to look to find these studies. They're not like, it's not like when I went to medical school, they presented this evidence and say, oh, contagion is, is, is really questionable. <laughs> right? uh, yeah. they, didn't, right. they didn't say that. But, you know, why is it that you can't find one scientific study that demonstrates this phenomenon that you can transfer illness from one person to the next? That, that's, I have no idea. Wow. Right. Well, it's because it doesn't happen. Yeah. Uh, that, you know, that's the real reason. But uh, of course, we're just told that this is the truth since day one and we never question it. Like I never questioned it throughout medical school and practicing as a physician until I, you know, was able to open my eyes and say, hey, you know, is germ theory valid? And the, of course, this, you know, pandemic really um, accelerated my study in, the, in that area. But but once I looked at it, I was like, wow, there's, there's actually no evidence for this. It's quite astonishing 
um, to, you know, think that you've been misled your whole life. But, you know, if, I mean, if contagion is really true in that manner, then where are the studies? Why can't I find a study showing it? Yeah, and it's such an obsession with knowing. I mean, first of all, we, we're familiar with epidemiolo epidemiology because we, we've always had to deal with it in the nutrition and health space and just try to tell people that this, this is just not designed for this purpose. But now it's interesting to find out that it's not even good for the purpose it's designed for. And, you know, how many times are these, all of these studies, they're referenced thousands of times and the, the actual data is in there, but the interpretation and, you know, the way it's referenced is, is, is quite the opposite. I remember last year when they were looking at pregnant women and the effects of genetic modification, the, the, um, interpretation was like, oh, it's perfectly healthy. But, you know, the data was saying the opposite. And so it's like, it's so impossibly hard yeah. to trust the very authorities that we're supposed to count on to tell us what's going on. Yeah. Danny, I, you know, it, it's been astonishing to me. I've found so many examples of this um, in the scientific and medical literature. And in fact, uh, you know, I should call your attention, um, Professor Ioannidis from Stanford, who's actually one of the world most famous uh, epidemiologists in the world. And it basically, the title is that more than half of all published research findings are false. <laughs> so, so when you look at any scientific paper, it's actually more likely than not that what you're reading is false. And I've had the, this experience many times where I read the results section and then I read the conclusion and they don't match. Exactly. <laughs> That's crazy. It's yeah. literally right? right under it. It's because it's like right they, they know that most people are going to skim and kind of go to that part. Yeah, most people can't really, most people don't have, academic right. And, and even Listen, if it's uh, most, when it comes to doctors, they, they just read the titles. Usually they don't even read, they don't even read the abstract, but the abstract is very often very misleading. Um, it doesn't, you know, you, you really, and I was very fortunate to be taught this early on and it was reinforced because they taught me this at Duke when I did my residency. And then, I had an excellent research uh, mentor um, when I was uh, at Upstate Medical University, and it is you have to read the method section. That's the most important thing because that's how they actually did the research. And if you don't understand that, there's no way you can interpret the results because you can't rely on the authors. They have conflicts of interest and other incentives. Um, you know, in fact, like when it comes to a lot of research, for example, let's say that you're studying a certain treatment for a certain illness. Well, if you don't have a benefit, you don't even publish it. They don't even publish negative uh, studies, right? So we don't, we don't, first of all, that means the knowledge is not available to us, right? But it also means that if you're conducting the research that you have disappointed everyone, if, if it's negative, because you don't get to even publish, which is what gets you more grant money and uh, promotions and speaking engagements and such. You did it wrong. Right? <laughs> yeah. It wrong. Well, it, it almost, you know, has that connotation. So what, what if you can, you know, fudge things to make it look positive? And this is done in all different kinds of ways. And it, it's, uh, it's not immediately obvious to everyone, but there's certainly good material written about how these things, I mean, uh, get happen. I mean, many of the times they have ghost writers, um, you know, all kinds of schemes uh, that they use uh, to do this. I mean, one of them, they, they really played up with this, um, uh, what did you call it, gene modification? 
Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Okay. And that was the, you know, effectiveness rate that was quoted as being, you know, 94 or 95%. And this is a trick they actually taught us at Duke. So when I was in my first year of residency at Duke, they had us do what's called a critical appraisal of the literature. And we'd be assigned papers and we would have to, you know, basically scrutinize every line in the paper, and which is what you should do. And they said there's this one uh, trick that they often use in clinical trials, and especially when they have a condition that occurs at a low frequency, a low base rate. And it's called the relative risk ratio, relative risk reduction. And so like in these um, gene modification study, I think it was the uh, one with the, the company that starts with PF, they had like many thousand uh, participants, but only like a hundred or so cases of the cooties. And so it was a, a low frequency, like way less than 1% of the total, right? But the thing is, is that everyone, all 3,000 people or whatever, all got the experimental gene modification. So you want to look at what's the benefit, right, in, in risk reduction to every single person in the study. And then you'd say, well, first of all, your chance of getting the cooties is really low because it's less than 1% in this group, right? So that means for more than 99% of the people, it's actually not going to provide any benefit because they didn't get sick. But if you do the relative risk reduction, then you only look at the people who got sick. And then it's like, oh, well, you know, it's 95% uh, of of them, you know, that it's the ratio between the two groups, right? So a little bit fewer people got sick in one group versus the other, and they only looked at that small number of people. But that tells you nothing about the other, you know, 2,900 people. So what you're supposed to look at is what's called the absolute risk reduction. And that means for any given person who takes this experimental uh, genetic modification, what's their reduction of getting a serious symptoms. And it wasn't, remember, it wasn't looking at preventing the illness. It was only looking at preventing serious symptoms. And when you calculate the numbers that way, it's far less than 1%. So that's the trick. You turn something that they would have to say, I think it was like 0.46% risk reduction into 95% risk reduction just by magic, um, you know, doing a, a calculation by leaving out almost everybody. So, you know, but that's the number, of course, that got reported all over the media. And, you, you know, no one would even question it because they wouldn't even know about this. They wouldn't know how to calculate these numbers, um, you know, or anything like that. You'd have to be in the know, um, you know, to even pick up that this is an issue. But that's one example of the kind of trickery and that's only one of a whole bag of tricks um, to make these studies look much more favorable than they actually are. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, off the top of my head, I can name a few other tricks. First of all, the seven country study that Ansel Keys mentioned oh. <laughs> it was really the fifteen country study. Cherry picking is Cherry the picking. Uh, right. That's the the trick that they used in that one. Yeah, and then there's uh, what about 
you know, using relative risk versus absolute risk when you're comparing the, the actual risk of, of adverse events versus the, the benefit of the treatment. Um, and I'm trying to think of, there was another one that I was thinking of too. There, there, there's so many shenanigans. And then even by those numbers, that, that, uh, that effectiveness has dropped to about 61%, right? With the uh, gene modification. I, I saw that reported recently. Well, you know, the, so the way that I, you know, I'm pointing out the tricks where they tried to make things look better than the data really showed. But if you want my honest analysis, like the, it's completely meaningless because the only outcome was with a PCR test and the PCR test has not even undergone a basic validation study. A validation study is to show that uh, a test that you come up with actually measures what you say it measures. Without that, you don't, you, you don't know. Well, yeah, you can't calculate sensitivity or specificity or false positive or false negative in, without a validation study because that's what provides the data to calculate those numbers. So even though there has been numbers reported as false positive rate for the PCR test, they're actually, those are just estimates. They're not a real number. They're just made up uh, numbers because there's been no validation study. And this is why they couldn't, they couldn't even apply for FDA approval for any of the diagnostic tests because the first thing that's required is a validation study and those numbers. <laughs> so so that, you know, even though the gene modifications may get some kind of approval um, in a confusing way, the, the uh, diagnostic test will never get approved because they haven't even done the first step of applying for approval, which is a validation study. Well, well, I'm going to say one more thing. I'll let you ask a question. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just, I, because I, I, I thought this was so ironic. So um, I remember... This was very early on. They talked about they had sequenced 88% of the genome or something like that. And um, I thought, wow, that's, that's really not a lot. And then I started looking into it. And then I was like, I remember hearing somewhere that we're 95% similar to chimpanzees. And as I was researching that, I realized that that number wasn't even accurate because 20% of the code was like unreadable. So out of the 80% that they were able to sequence, that was what made us that similar to chimpanzees. It was something like that. So the moral of today's show is false premises and going off of creating these whole storylines based on, you know, initially a false premise, which is everything that you just said. Right. So there, I'm done. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, it's a house of cards because, you know, once you uh, realize that they're actually isn't even a virus at all that exists in the world, right? In nature, it might exist in a, someone's mind or in a computer, but not in, a, not in nature. Well, then you realize that every single study that, ten, that purports to examine something related to that virus is invalid, right? And what, it, what they all are, are just simulations, Every study is using a, a simulation of some kind, either completely in a computer, or sometimes they even make synthetic, what they call pseudoviruses. Since they don't have the real thing, they make a facsimile of it to study. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, uh, it, it's crazy. It's like making a robot of it, that modeled after a human to study humans. Like, why not just study humans? So you've done such a good job on presenting on the similarity of viruses and exosomes 
Can you explain that for our audience and what the implications may be for describing and treating illnesses like the cooties? Well, um, I wouldn't say they're similar because, um, well, we have to just uh, say what things are things here. So what they call viruses don't actually even exist at all. So since they're nothing, they're not similar to anything. So what we can talk about, though, is the theoretical construct of what they say viruses are. So if you go and open up, you know, any uh, microbiology book, um, you know, college level or for medical school or whatever, you're going to see a description of what a virus is in there. And now none of that is based on actual scientific evidence, but, but it's theoretical. And so they'll say that it's a, you know, a particle of a nanometer scale, like a 50 to three or 400 nanometers, somewhere in that range that, um, you know, is made of a protein envelope and has genetic material inside. Okay. And that's exactly the same description of exosomes. Now, exosomes were not coined or labeled as such until about 30 years ago. So the field of exosome research is about 30 years old. And but uh, what an exosome is, is it is a tiny particle, exactly as I just described, except that it comes from our own cells and it's generated in response to some sort of insult, like poisoning with a toxic chemical, things which could be from our own metabolic products or even things like antibiotics, uh, rate exposure to radiation, um, you know, psychological trauma, um, acute illness, asthma attacks, cancer, uh, essentially all disease states seem to induce our cells to put off these particles called exosomes. And they're generally thought to um, be involved in communication that the genetic material packaged inside them sends information to a remote part of their body. Now, these are actual real things, at least within the limitations of electron microscopy, because they've been taken directly out of a person, purified, so that they're just this particular exosome, you know, in a test tube by itself. And then they can study the structure and um, composition. So they can actually uh, look at what proteins are on the envelope and um, develop assays to, uh, to understand what it's made of. Um, they can also extract the genetic material directly from the particle and then sequence it. And they've done that and they've shown real sequences. Um, and they've shown, for example, that it, they contain different types of genetic material. They, some of them contain DNA, single-stranded or double-stranded or even mitochondrial DNA. Um, and then they can also contain RNA, various types, including microRNAs, which are very small RNA sequences. And so basically all of the same exact types of genetic material that if you go back to that microbiology textbook, they would say that are in virus particles. So the thing is that they've never been able to purify virus particles out of any person with an illness. So they can with exosomes. In fact, you can find papers just describing methods to purify exosomes out of the body. Wow. That's, right? see, that seems more accurate and more right. real. It is. And so, um, but they were never able to actually purify or take 
any thing that was would constitute a virus particle out of any sick person. They had to basically make up this whole other experiment in order to even fudge this. And, you know, this is the tissue culture experiment. They call it isolation, but uh, it defies the meaning of the word. It's just a word that only virologists use that way, but it really fools most people who just look at the title of these papers because, you know, you can find several papers that say, you know, isolation of a novel coronavirus. The, the thing is that they don't actually isolate anything. And even when the authors were uh, emailed and asked, did you purify any viral particles out of any sample? They all said no, right? So they understand the meaning of purification. They don't, they think isolation means a different thing, right? So you have to um, sort of parse the language in order to get at the truth, right? And this is partly the reason why it's so difficult for many people to drill down to this point and understand exactly what's going on. But they've never actually demonstrated this virus particle. When they show you pictures, <laughs> that they say are that right now there are two kinds of pictures one picture type of picture is just completely made up by an artist and that's like the most famous red and white um you know uh virus picture that everybody has seen that that's purely imagination but there are really microscope images showing particles the thing is that those particles are just breakdown products of dying cells there's no way, there's nothing special or any way, objective way of identifying that that particle is a virus. What they do is they look at a toxic cell culture under the microscope that's got tons of different kinds of particles. And if they're looking for a coronavirus, well, they're looking for particles that have little dots on the, they're round and they have little dots on the outside, right? And so as soon as they find those, but if they weren't looking for those, if they were looking for Ebola, then they'd look for a different uh, type of particle, or if they were looking for measles, and they'd be able to find, by the way, all of these things in every sample, because they aren't viruses at all. They're just the breakdown products of dying cells. And there was a paper that came out last August from Kidney360, where they found the same coronavirus looking particles in kidney biopsies from people with kidney disease who didn't have any viral illness or suspected viral illness. And it was from years before the pandemic even existed. So in these kidney biopsies, they saw the same exact particles, right? And so they recognized they they call them virus mimickers. And they even said that the protein dots were clathrin, a different protein, right? Now, how did they, I'm not sure how they knew that, but that's what they said. Uh, maybe it was from other papers and I just didn't look into it. But so they recognized that, oh, you see these particles in all kinds of uh, microscopic images, right? And when they say it's a virus, it's just because they want to show a virus. So they point it out there and they say that, you know, if they wanted to say that, oh, this new coronavirus infects the kidneys, they could go to this study and get those kidney biopsy samples and say, look, there it is. Oh my God, everybody, we're going to need dialysis machines for everybody instead of ventilators now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, I mean, that's, that's how scientific it is. Wow. I, uh, you blew my mind when I, fir I first heard you talking about that last year on Crow. And I was just like, wait, what? This is all a, this is all a drawing? This is all a painting? Um, I, I, I want to go a different direction with this next question. Um, I just, it's interesting that 
we're seeing people being treated with exosomes now. There's a budding research and- Are you uh, talking about the gene modification injections? Because that really, those really are synthetic exosomes. Well, I was saying in a, in a positive light, you know, people doing exosome therapy, like um, kind of in the biohacking space. And then we're also seeing- fecal- Well, I've never heard of this. What, what do you mean exosome therapy? I don't know the, uh, I don't know the, what type of exosomes they're using, but um, I was, what was it? It was basically the next step of, you know, peptides have been really huge, you know, where we have uh, these amino acid chains that, that are mess- sending messages and so much better than, you know, like taking an um, exogenous hormone or something like that. And my buddy who's in the biohacking space, is, he's like, there's, there's all types of exosome therapy that people are doing. I don't know if this is as pseudoscientific as the other stuff, but the point of the, of the question was like, it seems like, you know, the things that they, in typical inverted fashion, a lot of the things that they tell us hurt us may be used to help us. You know, like we see people putting fecal transplants and, and uh, with bacteria on, on the bacterial side, but um, exosomes, uh, I'll have to email you whatever I can find. Uh, but it's kind of like one of the newest things that these biohacking uh, clinics are looking into. And I, I wouldn't know what areas of therapy they're looking at. But Right. Well, I, I'll tell you, I'm not a big fan of biohacking because I actually look at this gene modification is biohacking. Right. Oh, yeah. Right? At the deepest. And level. Uh, so, you know, now I'm not saying like I, I don't know everything that's, you know, talked about in this community, but if it comes to like using things that are not natural to try to, you know, get performance uh, out of the body. I'm not a proponent of that. I think that nature actually provides all the mechanism to get the optimum health, vitality, and performance uh, that we have to offer. And, you know, we could talk about specific ways. So, you know, I definitely wouldn't recommend taking blood products or cells or organs out of, you know, one person. Like, in my opinion, that's kind of a form of cannibalism. Um, but what we can do is, you know, is we can, um, you know, support our body's own, uh, systems like, like one huge thing, because, you know, obviously you guys are into health and fitness, right? So the, and you mentioned the Ansel Keys study. So you already know, right. That the whole cholesterol thing is a complete inversion and this, so cholesterol is one of the most important molecules in our body, right? Because, at least they, they tell us that every cell membrane of every cell is made of it. Uh, something like 90% of the dry weight of your central nervous system is cholesterol. And then cholesterol is the precursor to all of your steroid hormones, to vitamin D and various other uh, biomolecules. So, you know, with what we're doing is not only trying to eat less foods, like according to the mainstream wisdom that contain the precursors for our body to make cholesterol, right? And and then also telling us to really avoid eating cholesterol, right? Which is only made by animals. So, uh, you know, this doesn't apply to vegans, but, and then on the same time, they want everybody to be taking drugs to also artificially lower your body's synthesis of cholesterol. And what this puts us into is a weakened state, right? Um, Because, you know, all 
I think this is the main cause of all of the problems with like, for example, low T among men who that they start to get, you know, lose their energy and vitality, sexual functioning and, uh, and such, you know, in their, in their middle ages, it's simply because of this. And, you know, you can't put on, like you need to have, uh, be able to make enough testosterone and anabolic steroid hormones, right? If you want to strengthen yourself, if you want to put on uh, muscle mass and have energy and participate in sports and physical, uh, you know, strenuous activities, right? And if you don't have the cholesterol, you can't do that. And your body has this mismatch. And then people try to do hacks to overcome this, right? By sometimes injecting themselves with testosterone, right? Which um, can have a lot of untoward effects, liver cancer, you know, roid rage, acne, um, all of those kinds of things, right? It's, it's not a, it's not a good way to go. Um, or, you know, they use a lot of these processed protein powders, um, you know, or use stimulants and all kinds of things, right. That may get short-term results, but it's all these things are actually harming the body, right. In various ways. And so, you know, this is kind of the, the approach that I would take. So, you know, like if someone wants to reverse these things, you know, you just got to eat a bunch of liver <laughs> and, yeah, uh, big and, poultry and lobster. Oh yeah. And uh, like I've seen when, when I first experimented with this myself, just eating high cholesterol foods, I noticed that my muscles got bigger, even though I wasn't even working out yes. during that yes. time. Right. And I was like, whoa, because, you know, we've all seen people walk around who are just naturally muscular and you wonder, it's like, oh man, I wish I had those genes, but maybe you just wish you had their mom's cooking. Right, yeah. A steak. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So we wanted to get some clarity on some of the more serious um, potential side effects of the genetic modification. So can you talk about S1 and S2, what the claims are on how the genetic modification works and what's really happening? Have you looked into S1 and S2 kind of the... well? Um, I know enough about it to answer this question. Um, and in fact, I did a whole presentation on the spike protein uh, and COVID myths too, which uh, you can see um, on my uh, membership site, True Medicine Library, which the membership is free. So, you know, anyone can uh, take a look at that uh, webinar uh, where I go into this in a lot more detail. But so what we have is these gene modification um, technologies and uh, you know, they don't all work exactly the same. So I'm generalizing a little bit here, but essentially what they do is they contain the, what they say is the genetic instructions, you know, like messenger RNA gene or a DNA gene that codes for this spike protein or a subunit of the spike protein. Okay. Cause S1 and S2 are the subunits of it. So supposedly this gene gets into the recipient and gets into the cell and then uses the cell's machinery to make the spike protein. Now that's what they tell us theoretically how it works. Now there are really no studies demonstrating that the host actually makes the spike protein. And they avoided this on purpose because this is, are the studies they're supposed to do to look at the risk of shedding. They're supposed to test all body fluids to see is there the foreign gene product of the gene modification, which is the spike protein, is it present in you know the blood, the saliva, the feces, urine, um, you know, and other secretions? 
And because if it were present there, then it could potentially be transferred to another person. So they avoided these studies. So we don't even know for sure if people who get this uh, gene modification therapy actually make the spike protein or not. Now, if they do make it, well, it is a toxin. Absolutely. And they've because so we don't know if the spike protein comes from anywhere in nature because it's never been taken from a natural source and purified and studied. Uh, they've only um, had essentially a simulated computer sequence that they say is the sequence for a, what they call a spike protein. And then they've made it in uh, recombinant organisms in a laboratory or in a factory. Um, you know, the same way they make like citric acid, for example, they grow a culture of bacteria, which has the artificial gene put in, and then that bacteria makes this uh, compound and then they purify it. So you can go to five or six or even more different companies and buy a vial of spike protein powder. Um, and so some scientists did that, and then they gave it to some laboratory animals to look at its toxicity. And they found that it, that it is toxic uh, to the, both the nervous system and the vascular system or the blood vessels. Was that the ferrets? No, no, they were a study in mice and in some kind of aquatic animal that I, I want to say zebrafish, but I'm not uh, positive, um, but I can always send you those papers later if you like. Um, you know, that, that ferret study is uh, completely misinterpreted. Uh, we, I can talk about that in a few minutes if you like. So we know that the spike protein is toxic. We don't know if recipients of the genetic modification actually make it. So that is kind of, there's many, many unknowns uh, about these uh, experimental therapies. Now, you know, in terms of the short-term toxicity, we, we have a pretty good record of that from the voluntary reporting systems, you know, and we know there's a variety of problems that there are neurologic problems, there are cardiovascular problems, and then there are these blood clot related problems, as well as um, problems related to um, female reproductive system. So I would say that those are the, you know, the big four categories that are uh, reported most widely um, in terms of adverse effects. And of course, many times they have led to death, but we don't have any information about the long-term toxicity. And we also don't really know fully what's in these things. Now, there are the lipid nanoparticles, which is also could be called hydrogel, and those are the, the sacs. They, they take the place of the protein envelope of an exosome. Um, it's a synthetic version of that, um, and that is what the genetic material is inside, except in the J&J uh, &J technology, they use um, an actual envelope from a fake uh, virus, or it's really probably an exosome that they've emptied out and then put, put whatever they want in there. I'm not sure exactly how they do it, but, but that's what they do in their technology. And so we know that these lipid nanoparticles or hydrogel itself is toxic. And we know that it disseminates all over the body, um, including in those locations where there may be toxicity. So that could be a cause of much of the short-term toxicity. Also, it's not talked about as much as the S protein, but, but that is known also to be toxic. There are studies on that as well. And then there are undisclosed ingredients. And, you know, there have been a lot of rumor of graphene oxide. I don't believe there's any definitive 
um, analytical science that shows it's there, but there's a ton of circumstantial evidence um, that it's there. And that is definitely toxic, even can cause death. Um, and then there's additional research, which I do believe is, is valid, which shows nanoparticulate metal particles, uh, various uh, different metals. And I think this research is going to be disseminated more publicly uh, very soon. Um, but you can learn about some of it uh, from Robert Young's uh, recent presentation on this. So I wouldn't say that everything is conclusive from his research, but I know that the parts looking at those uh, nanometallic particles, and it shows the spectrum uh, graph um, in, on his website, uh, you know, are quite valid. So that's an additional potential source of toxicity. So we don't know really, you know, what to expect. Um, I, you know, definitely know that whatever is coming with boosters this winter will contribute additional toxicity. Um, but it seems also that many people are seemingly unaffected in any adverse way. So, you know, it's hard to explain why some people would, you know, die within moments of receiving the injection and other people would be um, you know, completely unscathed. And there are rumors that some vials may not contain the same thing as others. Right. Um, yeah. But, but, you know, it's like no one, it's really hard to look at this systematically because you, you know, you need to have uh, access to a laboratory with millions of dollars of equipment. And then, you know, where are you going to have that? It's going to be at a university and then they're going to be wanting to know, why are you looking at the vaccines? <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> that, that's not allowed. Yeah. I mean, you know, allowed. we hear, we hear healthcare workers, um, you know, some of whom I've been directly in touch with. And when they, they have tons of people coming for all kinds of weird medical problems that are clearly related to, to these genetic modification treatments, right? Because they were healthy. And then suddenly within a day of, of getting this treatment, they have this weird problem, right? And it's, it's like not allowed among any of the health professionals to even entertain the possibility it could be from the treatment. And there, there you can hear some, you know, personal stories of people who they had these things themselves. Like there was a woman I heard that she basically lost must motor coordination of her uh, legs right? And like couldn't walk and was experiencing some other strange neurologic symptoms within, you know, just a day uh, of receiving one of these treatments. And at the hospital, they would, they basically sent her to the psych ward <laughs> that she was crazy, right? Um, they did all these workups, like no one, they, they got angry with her if she tried to bring up the possible relationship with the, um, the GM treatment. And then finally, one doctor, a neurologist diagnosed her with Guillain-Barre, which is well known to she's occur. She's local to us. That's, I, I you, you know who I'm talking about? Yeah, she's here. Well, we there's, a, in Tampa, well, there's so. a lot of stories that are very similar to this, to this. But yeah, there is a woman that actually works in my company who's here local to us that um, she has Guillain-Barre and a whole other list of, auto, of and... autoimmune issues that came immediately after the treatment. Um, she had to learn how to walk again. She's magnetic. <laughs> she can literally stick a key to her forehead. Um, so it's, yeah, scary stuff. So, 
Well, Dr. Mauda's going to leave for a second and we're just going to finish up just you and me. Yeah, I, okay. I got to take the kiddos, Yeah, we but have I will our, definitely be tuning in. This is amazing stuff. Yeah, our boys, we, we have this amazing, we couldn't find it if we even looked for it. We have this yeah, amazing homeschool co-op here that, that she's got to take them to. So I love you. And Thank you so you much. I'm, I was so happy to meet you and I'm so excited to hear the rest of the, yeah. <laughs> the show. Yeah, because Same I here. enjoy. I want to I wanna talk about Mucho this. Gusto. <laughs> he said mucho gusto. Oh, igual, igual. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the um, where was I going? There was I was I was thinking about um, yeah. So what what I tell people because this is just kind of my thoughts on on the risks, the potential risk is that you could never really tell because you know I in a perfect world I would love for all parents to take the effort to. Um, get their their child's DNA read as as early as possible because for example Maura we didn't know this until she was in her 30s you know she was um, homozygous for MTRR and MTHFR and all this time she thought that she was just lazy and it turns out that she wasn't getting her her you know her folate or B12 you know at all and so when I think about someone who um, so just by the way yeah eat liver. And oh yeah, right, we, right. That's we all you eat need a ton to do. Of liver. Yeah, we eat so, a ton of liver. You know, so I, I take a little bit of a different approach because usually what what happens is just by talking and asking questions about what's going on, you can figure this out, right? And you may not you may not come to the point where you say, oh well, you must have a genetic, you know, uh, mutation because I, I don't believe that that actually determines the disease state. Absolutely. You could maybe it'll be different later on, um, you know, if you have a different lifestyle, but you can definitely tell, okay, because I know that when you have low energy, one of the first things I'm going to think about is cholesterol. And so we'll easily get to the point of what will correct it, even if we might have a different way of saying what the problem is. Maybe I'd say, well, you, you know, you should, you didn't eat enough of this type of food. Right. And so because you know that we all have individual differences in our body and all these things change over our lifetime. Right. Depending on so many factors that we can't even really name them. But I know that, you know, it's it's not very common that someone can just eat, pick one kind of diet and stick with it for life and then maintain optimal health based upon that. Right. A lot of times we need to change things up because we've been neglecting one thing over another, or we've been having too much of something that's not very good, <laughs> you know, all kinds of things happen. And usually, I mean, when, when people come to me with health problems, uh, if they're vegan, they probably need to eat meat. If they're a, a carnivore, they probably need to be vegan for a while, you know? It's <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. It's the variation, <laughs> the beauty. Right. Is variation. So, um, but but, you know, but I think that really we don't need to go to some of these, uh, you know, um, testing protocols or uh, blood work or things to really, because even though they can sometimes provide useful information, they can be so misleading. And, you know, I'd say 99 out of 100 times when someone brings me a test result they've misinterpreted or somebody's misinterpreted it. And many times they're actually doing harm to themselves as a result of misinterpreting. Like thyroid disease is one of the biggest examples. I, 
you know, when I was uh, first doing my medical training in PA school, that we had this old school endocrinologist, he'd been around the block, you know, for he was at the end of his career, he had a lot of wisdom. And, and he taught us and this was in the 90s. The only really time you'll see a low thyroid is from people who had treatment for a high thyroid that, you know, because they had their thyroid surgically removed or destroyed with radiation because those were the treatments. And that, that only extremely rarely is there this ever thing called Hashimoto's thyroiditis. Now, then, you know, 10 years later, when I'm a, a psychiatrist in working in the ER, it's like. 50% of the patients I see are on thyroid hormone. I'm like, what the heck's going on here? None of these people had their thyroid taken out. <laughs> and what I learned is it was all just a misinterpretation of the blood tests. And then once you, once someone is taking a thyroid hormone replacement, like as a doctor, you're taught you need that to live. You can't take that away. When, you know, So it's like you have to take it for life. So someone misinterprets a lab, puts someone on thyroid hormone, and then every other doctor they see keeps them on it just because that's what you have to do to keep someone alive. But, but I'll tell you that, you know, not one time did a person actually have a problem with their thyroid um, and they can all get off the thyroid hormone and be much, much healthier. But, you know, so that's, so I would just caution you know, of how you interpret this information and how you use it um, and what, what you make of it. Yeah. I mean, you're really stretching my mind because um, it's obvious that you really do from a philosophical standpoint, practice what you preach on, at every level. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, where I was going is that my kind of viewpoint was saying, okay, there's no way with even with all of the AI in the world, we would ever be able to understand every single combination of DNA and what this could do to it. And so, you know, for example, with the thyroid, my, my, uh, what I understood that as was like, okay, we need to do a different test. Maybe they're missing reverse T3. Maybe they need thyroid antibodies. But what you're saying is that, again, getting back to terrain theory, there's something that maybe is missing or... Uh... Well, I'm also saying, you know, what medicine is doing is they want to get you on drugs because that's their, their business model. And so they create tests that are going to get you on drugs. Now, I'm just saying, like, I would just say, ask the person, hey, how are you feeling? Do you feel good? Do you feel good? You don't have thyroid disease. Because thyroid not working, you feel like crap, right? So that's just now there's specific ways that you feel like crap. But all you have to do is just ask that one question. And then, you know, if, the per if you're feeling good, you are good. You're healthy, right? Now, there might be some problem that is brewing, right? But you can just get at that by looking at what you do in your life, you know, so are you smoking crack all day long? Then probably that's going to have a health toll on you in time, right? Now, that's, that's kind of an obvious example, but there are many, many things like this. So if you just get at some of these questions um, and just pay attention, you know, how do I feel? That, that's where you're going to get at what are the real health concerns going on with a person. You don't need to 
you know, have a screening physical, like, you know, the, the annual physical exam and checkup that is always recommended. That's been uh, studied many times and not once has it ever shown to benefit somebody's health. I, I, I totally, <laughs> I was just going to say, I don't want to say who it is because I don't want to, um, you know, uh, make it seem like they're not healthy and, and put, put them out there. But like this person, someone who I know, you know, skin tags, obvious uh, rosacea, um, you know, carrying fat in specific places. And we know that insulin resistance could be building without it affecting your A1C. So this person goes to the doctor, gets the blood work, doctor pats this person on the back, person leaves. And it's like, wait a second, this person, speaking of feel good, this person doesn't feel good, you know, and this person has bouts of of IBS type symptoms followed by bouts of constipation. And it's like, something's wrong, but on all these things that we use to tell us that it's okay, this person is, is fine. And, and no one thought to say, hey, how do you feel right now? Because if that question would have been asked, it would have been like, well, let me tell you how I feel. I feel terrible. <laughs> yeah. And, and I bet because of the way you described that person that the minute you laid eyes on them, you know that they were unwell. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And especially because you know them and you see the decline over time. But again, the blood work is not showing it. So, you know, we need to learn how to observe ourselves better again, get back to this natural thing, you know, to trust our senses, because we really, you know, it's not that hard, like, um, you know, just an instant, you know, look at someone, usually you can tell if they are in good health or not. Um, And, you know, you can know the same thing about yourself. And then, you know, if you pick up on the subtleties, uh, and, you know, this is true about many other things, too. Like we can do this with with nutrition, with eating. You know, it's like we always rush through meals, right? We uh, wolf down stuff. Um, we eat when we're not hungry for other purposes. But we can get back to say, okay, like let's have a new relationship with food because food is actually what our body's made of, right? It's like if we are going to build something, right, we we gather up the materials that we need to build that. We don't gather up a bunch of garbage, right? And use that to make a structure, right? We use the right materials. So it's the same thing with our bodies. We should think about, okay, what materials does my body need to be, you know, in perfect functioning or function the way I want it to? Let me, you know, find those things and nurture uh, you know, my body with, with those elements and let me not put in, you know, junk, right? Because I don't want to be made of junk. Yeah. I mean, I, you're, you're, I'm just thinking of seed oils right there. I mean, your, your, your cell membranes, you're building them with seed oil. That's, that's not going to turn out well. <laughs> uh, let me see. I, I, okay. So, um, okay. I'll, I'll ask this quick question um, to see what your thoughts are, but I just want to comment, like, I know you're not, because I've seen you've been on shows where they talk about the esoteric, but now that I'm, I know you're, you're, you're not averse to having that conversation, but I, I will just say that, you know, I've been reading Enoch, and I don't know if you've ever even heard of the book, but it's, it's just one of those apoc- apocryphal texts, and it's like, you know, my view of God has changed, you know, because we always say Old Testament God and New Testament God, and supposedly he's different, but then when you realize, like, what was being done 
back then, the genetic modification and the just, and it's on a spiritual level to me, it's very clear that all of it is an attempt to blaspheme God and to, and then we, we somehow think that this new modern sorcery is not sorcery. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And so, you know, I, I wanted to mention this because I think, you know, this is, will really help you uh, understand this aspect a little better with respect to the genetics. So, you know, I've, of course, heavily questioned and debunked the so-called evidence of germ theory and virology. But in doing that, I realized that there are other principles of biology that are also on quite shaky ground. And genetics is really a main one. And of course, virology is built on genetics. And here's the problem, right? So we're told the, and, and by the way, they actually call it the central dogma. Um, right, of biology. That's what uh, Professor Vern Ingram, uh, the term that he used when he taught me at MIT, and he was in, like he learned biology in Crick's laboratory, like Watson and Crick, the double helix people. So what they say is, right, DNA gets made into RNA, that's called transcription, and then the RNA leaves the nucleus, goes into the cell membrane, and and becomes a protein, and that's called translation. And we're told that for every protein that we make, there's at least one gene. There might even be more than one gene for a protein because there could be a gene that makes a subunit of a protein and multiple genes that make different subunits. Like, for example, insulin, which is a protein we're all familiar with, it has two subunits and they're linked together. So there could be, I'm not sure if there is for insulin, but there could be a gene for each subunit. Now, here's the problem. We are told that there's about 100,000 different proteins that are made in the human body, right? So there would need to be 100,000 or more genes to code for all those proteins. But how many genes are there? Well, there are only between 20 and 22,000. Is that because we haven't found, we haven't identified more? No, they've all been identified. This is the results of the Human Genome Project. They know how many genes every creature that's been sequenced has. And so they know we have 20 or 22,000. So you could see then that's a major shortfall. So where is the information that tells the sequence of all the other 80,000 proteins? Nobody now these numbers are widely published in the mainstream literature, and you can see that it all it takes is simple arithmetic to see that there's a major problem with this theory, right? But there's been no mainstream scientist that has taken this up and tried to look at where the information comes from for proteins. So you really if you look at this genetic mutations or genetic determinism or any of these things, you've got to realize that it's all based on a false premise and that we don't really know how all of these proteins are made. So when you have these, you know, um, sorcerers, so to speak, that are making these genetic modification technologies, these are actually basically um, corrupting whatever is our divine system of receiving this information. And I can tell you how I believe it works. 
by, you know, putting it in artificially from an unnatural source with unnatural instructions. And I believe that is ritualistic in a way and, and will result in actually uh, the recipient of that being owned as property, as oh, intellectual, exactly. intellectual property and, and otherwise. So, um, you know, so I think it really fits that you can look at it in this light and it's accurate. And so, so if you want to know what I think is really the information comes from is that, that our bodies are receivers of a signal of a waveform, right? Just like of how cell phones work and, you know, television works is right. The information that is on the cell phone, it goes through the air in waves, Right. And the wave carries the information. It's received by the device, and then the device displays it and, and can do other processes on it. So I believe that our bodies work the same way, that there is a signal. Maybe you could call it a divine signal, um, or you could call it a signal of nature, or you could even say that it's related to the Schumann resonance, which is the natural um, frequency band put out by the earth. Uh, we don't know really you know, definitively where this information, but that most likely the, the DNA, the chromosomes are actually like antennae that receive this signal. And then the information to make all those proteins is in the signal and it gets received and then it gets made by the cells. And then when we put in the artificial exosome gene modification technology, we are disrupting that natural system. We're corrupting it with information that is not of the divine source. And I think that is the spell or the sorcery or the black magic, um, you know, way of thinking about what's being done. I, I totally see it. I mean, and I see it. I mean, it's obviously genes are, are not the only ways they're doing it. Um, and that's a good segue because, um, you know, it's interesting to me that this whole fake news thing, you know, because I, I understand that people say, well, that's, that's not real. That's not real. We see it on, on every side of every issue, you know, and then sometimes I think it's interesting though, still to consider everything. I want to be able to consider it all, you know, where one on one side, someone is saying that they can trace back every single type, you know, this, in this very hyperbolic way saying that, um, that we can trace back every big sickness to arise in, for example, starting with a incandescent light bulb going to different frequencies and I've seen that stuff and it, I'm not really convinced by it, but, but it does play a part, you know, it's like this multi-pronged approach. So uh, like we were talking about before we got on the air is that, you know, that 17 year study looking at one or two to 4G, we saw the, the amount of damage that it did. And we know that those don't just go away. And as we increase uh, and we go to 5G, it's just adding insult to injury. So um you know, what, what are your thoughts on the part that that has to play on whatever's happening, you know, from a terrain theory standpoint? Yeah, well, so this is, uh, you know, kind of complicated because, you know, you, if you're looking, once again, this is epidemiology evidence that we're looking at here, right? So we're saying, okay, maybe certain diseases increased and at the same time, the amount of these frequency exposure of different, you know, data communications technology also increased, but that doesn't tell us anything about causality. Now we do know that, that some things do demonstrate causality. Like for example, people that put their, spend a lot of time with the cell phone to their head, develop these tumors called acoustic neuromas. 
okay, which are, uh, you know, they can be really problematic. It's not a cancerous type of tumor, but it still can be problematic. So we know there's this toxicity. We know that the body receives natural signals and that these unnatural signals interfere and disturb this in some way, but the effects maybe have been perhaps more subtle. So when I work with individuals in consultation, you know, one of the main things that I try to do is get to the root cause of whatever is affecting their health um, that, you know, with the issue that they want to discuss. And many times people feel that it is some kind of wireless um, EMF that's causing their problem. But in every single case, once we get into a deeper discussion, um, I've not really had any instances where anyone had a serious illness or a serious health problem that was related to this kind of exposure with the current technology. Now, this is you know not including 5G, but even including smart meters and things like that. Um, now, there have been some people that have had ringing in the ears or headaches, and then when they remove the exposure, those things go away. But that's not what I would call a serious health condition, you know, like cancer or a heart attack or um, an autoimmune disease or things like that. So I'm not saying that it's completely benign and you should, you know, like I'm using a computer that's wired and I turn the Wi-Fi off in my home and I don't have a smart meter. I wouldn't allow that. Um, 5G is, a, is a quite a bit different because it's much, much shorter wavelength than the you know, two, three, and four G uh, technologies. So that's actually why they need to put up so many more um, transmitters because since it's a much shorter wavelength, it can't travel as far, but it can penetrate things, uh, especially biological tissue much more readily. And there are studies that you can find even going back as far as the seventies that show that the 60 gigahertz frequency uh, range can actually cause quite significant um, uh, disease or pathology. It suppresses the bone marrow. So you become anemic and have low blood counts. It can cause problems with oxygenation in the organs and the mitochondria leading to organ failure. So, I mean, it can be, you know, even potentially lethal. And then we know that it's actually been developed for military applications for crowd control. And, um, you know, you can even find on YouTube demonstrations of this where they, you know, turn it on and people uh, feel a burning sensation in their skin and really intensely, and they just get away, right? So obviously, you know, that, that alone tells you that it's potentially harmful. But the question of, you know, have there actually been people getting ill in the places where it's turned on, you know, that is something that I just haven't seen clear evidence of. Um, and, you know, even, even for, I haven't even heard individual anecdotes about it really, um, or anything large scale. So I think there's, a great potential, but I, but I also feel that there's actually a huge risk from, from 5G in terms of the internet of things and internet of bodies. And I, I believe that that's actually the main reason why there is a rush to install the infrastructure because they need that technology to carry out the full surveillance system. Yeah. To track everybody. Yeah. Exactly. And so I think, you know, that is the bigger danger in my opinion, but, you know, certainly like if you have, you know, every block is going to, you know, if it goes according to plan, have one or two of these transmitter receivers. And if they could control those, like, let's say people on one block started to get unruly, they're, you know, fighting back against, uh, you know, the tyranny or whatever, 
and they could just turn on the thing on that block up to a really high amplitude and everybody would have that burning skin sensation, right? And they would just, uh, they could disperse the crowd that way, right? So, so I think it's quite possible we could experience something like that in the future. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, again, the, the correlation even, and definitely not causation, but like, you know, I go down, it's funny, I've been researching all types of health stuff for 20 years now. And, you know, I remember like, I read a book called The Soy Conspiracy. And then it was like, with the, you know, as soy began to become, you know, more used, we saw the testosterone drop and cancer. And then I, my buddy, Anthony J, he's an epigeneticist for the uh, Mayo Clinic. He wrote um, Estrogeneration. So and then I looked at xenoestrogens. The bottom line is that it's a toxic soup. That's <laughs> right. That's right. We've got so many insults coming after us all, all at the same time. And it, it is like, it is a cumulative effect of all these things. Uh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I mean, look, once I really started realizing that toxicity was a main cause of disease, and then I just investigated what our exposure is like, it's, it's, it's incredible. It's overwhelming. I mean, you know, it's something like over a thousand chemicals that we're exposed to on a daily basis, Yeah. right? How do you keep track of what all those things are, right? And it's even the most, you have to, you know, if you really want to get serious about it, you got to consider everything, every single thing that comes in any kind of contact with your body, like the air in your house, your clothing, you know, every type of soap or chemical that you put on your skin. Um, or the, even the, what you use to clean your clothes or your dishes or the surfaces of your house, right? It's like everything, yeah. you know, and, and you can of course take that, uh, pretty far if you're, uh, really want to be a purist and, you know, I've taken it fairly far. Like I only use baking soda for my laundry, for example, I make my own cleaners. And even when I have a cleaning service come, they use my, which is just vinegar, uh, water and essential oil. Yeah. And it does a great job cleaning by the way. And it's cheaper than, <laughs> than the, you know, toxic, uh, commercial cleaners. But, um, you know, so if you, but if you go out in public, especially nowadays, right, they're dousing every surface of every, uh, you know, store and restaurant with all these really toxic chemicals, quaternary amines, ammonia, you know, all this kind of stuff. I mean, the grocery store that I go to for like the first, I'd say at least six months um, of the, co you know, the restrictions for the cooties. I remember you telling the story. They were, they're spraying ammonia on the conveyor belt at the cash registers, like after every single person's groceries. Now imagine that cashier just breathing in ammonia all day long. Ammonia is extremely toxic. Right. So eventually I think they got enough complaints that they stopped uh, doing that. But, you know, it's it's really uh, amazing all the things that we're exposed to. And it's no wonder that, you know, so many people are chronically ill. Yeah. I mean, it's it's uh, it's crazy. You know, I do. I do. I have two. I have homozygous COMT. Not that again, that's my interpretation is that's probably not good. But I do sauna every single day. Uh, and, you know, it's part of like my morning routine, but um, Dr. Kaufman, this was, this was awesome. It was exactly what I thought it would be talking to you. 
Um, I just want to give you a chance to talk about like what you're working on now, where, where people can find you online. Um, I think I am a member because I've, if I've seen all of the videos on the website, then I am a member. I just don't remember, but we'll put all of that in, in the show notes. But yeah, what, what, what are you working on and where can people find you? Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, definitely find me on my website, andrewkaufmanmd.com and sign up for my newsletter, please, because that'll keep you in the loop um, because I have new projects all the time. And uh, so we're talking about truemedicinelibrary.com. That's where um, there's a free repository of all kinds of videos, documents, research papers, protocols, recipes um, that I would encourage you to sign up for so you can see some of those things. And then the big thing coming up is October 9th and 10th. Uh, Tom Cowan and I are putting on the True Healing Conference at truehealingconference.com. And it is a um, a look at all of these scientists and doctors who have, um, through their own research, most of them basically come up with ways to explain what biology, how it really works. So like looking at water and biophotons and orgone energy and the bio, the human biofield. So we're talking about, you know, energy related biology um, you know, new biochemistry and uh, all of this really fascinating stuff. And, um, you know, so it's going to be really special. We're not going to be all doom and gloom and talking about, you know, dangerous uh, jabs and things like that. We're going to focus on like, let's transition towards a, you know, truth in healing and real, you know, health and vitality for everyone from their own, you know, um, effort from their own direction. And so we're really excited about that. I love that. I saw I saw a post recently on Instagram that I thought, you know what, I'm gonna steal that. You know, everybody's talking about red pill, blue pill, black pill. This is this is a white pill. This is like, guys, you know, let's let's just take care of what we can take care of. I understand the importance of of kind of being in the know, whatever that means. Um, but you know, if you allow it to affect you the same way the other side of this coin is affecting you to me it's the same result you know stressed anxious people and we we know recently there there was a paper that i saw that shows how the implications of of the stress and how that can affect uh, i'm sure there's many more but i just recently saw one on on your health outcomes so uh definitely looking forward to that we're going to add it to everything and uh thank you so much really really appreciate you coming on you're welcome, uh, Danny. It's been a, a very interesting uh, time and I appreciate it. 